You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. This past Thursday afternoon, thousands of people gathered in the capital in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Pride Intolerance March. And the marchers do what they always do. They're waving their huge rainbow flags and their banners. And there was an extra stick this time because, hey, it was the first Jerusalem Pride Parade since the new government was elected. So that gave the journalists a nice narrative to play with, that this march was the first since the election of that hardline, religious, nationalist, homophobic government, which includes lots of homophobic senior ministers. If you're against a gay parade in the middle of the holy capital of Jerusalem, you're homophobic. And the thing about these rainbow people is they shove everything down your throats. You know, if you ask the Jerusalem residents if they want this circus in their town, most would say no. Jerusalem is known for its conservative and religious populations, but the rainbow people don't care. They're going to shove it right in your face whether you like it or not. It wouldn't matter if 99% of Jerusalem was against it because those religious and traditional folk, they don't count. It's the elites of Israel that decide things and they'll let that rainbow parade just trample over the holy streets of Jerusalem no matter what the people think, just like they do in the United States and in Israel too now, indoctrinating children with this stuff whether we want it or not. Now, it's bad enough that a lot of secular Jews are into this and the elites are letting it happen. What's bothersome is when the religious community starts to embrace it. I'm talking about the Orthodox religious community. For instance, the Orthodox organization Young Israel, they sent out a directive that any kind of trans person, if he comes into your shul, you have to embrace him and it's okay to seat him in the women's section. That is in Orthodox synagogues, you have a men's section and a women's section. If this trans guy wants to be in the women's section, let him go. Maybe they're supposed to let him into the women's bathroom too. And there was an article last week in the Times of Israel, and it's entitled like this. Am I an abomination? An Orthodox publisher speaks to gay teens. And what the article is about, it's about the Orthodox publishing house Koran, which publishes the Chumash, the Bible, with translations. It's decided to take into account what the gay readers are thinking and feeling when they read the text. What are they feeling when they read the book of Leviticus chapter 18, when it says, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It is an abomination. Do not lie with any animal to be contaminated with it. What is the poor gay congregant going to do when he sees that translation? You got to take into account his feelings. So the Orthodox publishing house is going to try to make their translation more palatable. So not to insult the guy sitting in shul, So they're taking a translation of the Hebrew text by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, something that sounds a little nicer so that nobody will be insulted and the Bible won't be homophobic anymore. So the publishing house Koran and the editors have this Chumash project. And for the first time, they're going to try to take into account the subjective experience of a gay teen reading these verses, reading the verses about not being allowed a man to dress up in a woman's clothing. How does he feel when he reads that? So instead of teaching these people that it's wrong and maybe that will cause them to think about it a little bit, maybe they don't have to act upon this urge they have. Maybe they can try to change. No, it's okay because we're going to take this very harsh text and we're going to play with the translation a little bit. And I'll read a little bit from this article about what the Orthodox Publishing House who translate these Bibles, what's going through their minds now. They admit that this law that is the law against homosexuality and dressing up in women's clothing, it's generated both emotional turmoil 
and intellectual dissonance. The emotional turmoil is most acute for gay teens, just as their sexual feelings are awakening. How does the Creator make some people gay and then deny them a reasonable adult life, a life that includes love and companionship? That now the publishing houses who are translating these texts, they're now concerned for the spiritual life of the gay reader. And then the article quotes some gay guy who goes to Shul, and he says like this, I remember sitting in Shul year after year, listening to the verse and reading the art scroll commentary and feeling such profound confusion and self-loathing and guilt when they read Parshat Achrei Mot, and it's on Yom Kippur, when everybody goes to Shul, Dafka, we read the end of Achrei Mot, where it mentions all these forbidden relationships. And he continues, for many, if not most young gay people, that experience begins in self-hatred and ends in anger. That is, if you're sitting in shul and you're reading on Yom Kippur, all the verses against homosexuality and bestiality and all these other forbidden relationships, this experience creates anger and self-hatred, fracturing the sense of communal belonging, trust in the Torah, and often faith in God. So they're saying that if what's contained in the Torah doesn't agree, it doesn't reconcile with what you like, then that creates for you a lack of trust in the Torah and you lose your faith in God. So if the Torah doesn't sanction homosexuality and bestiality and all the other LGBTQ freaky stuff, then we don't have trust in it and it's alienating people so they don't have that communal belonging anymore. You know, a lot of people think that the whole point of going to synagogue and praying together is to have a feeling of community. That's the point. No, it's not. It's a nice thing that when you go to shul and you pray together and you have a kiddish, it brings people together. That's terrific. But it's an extra bonus. It's not what Judaism is about. It's not about worrying so much that you'll insult somebody that you got to change the Torah now or change the translation so he'll feel part of the community. That's the most important thing. Community feeling, that warm and fuzzy vibe that everybody's davening together and having kiddish and eating kogel. That's a nice side effect of it all. But I thought we're praying to Hashem and trying to fulfill His Torah. But this is just an example of a lot of things in Torah that people don't agree with and they can't handle it. So what do they do? They change it. This goes for a lot of subjects. There's a lot of mitzvahs that don't jibe with our Western mindset. Let's say the mitzvah to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Oh, I don't like that one. Let's change it a little bit. Let's find a nice translation so it doesn't sound so mean. Instead of translating it as you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land, we'll translate it to, uh, and you shall drive the inhabitants in your car. I don't know. Maybe we'll find a nicer translation in the Navi. So when David and Melech is killing Goliath, it won't sound so harsh. Instead of slinging a rock at him, he slung roses. You can't do that. You can't play with the text. It says in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, that it's an abomination. You know, maybe if you leave the translation as it is, as it should be, that it's an abomination and the gay reader sees how wrong it is, maybe he'll change. Maybe something will get through to him that, hey, if the Torah is so obviously against it, you know, maybe I should think twice. Maybe I should try to change. Maybe I should work on myself. Just like adultery is wrong, nobody would say, well, I'm attracted to my neighbor's wife. So, you know, what am I going to do? That's how I feel. Nobody would do that. Nobody would say, oh, I'm attracted to little kids. Nobody would say, okay, then you can act on it. Well, same thing here. You're attracted to the same sex. You're not allowed to act on it. You got to keep it in your pants, as they say. Just like if you're attracted to your neighbor's wife. And what's troubling again is that it's become legitimate in the religious world, in the orthodox world. 
And if you look at the biblical history, when Hashem brought the flood onto the world and when he destroyed Stom and Amora, it wasn't just because there were gay people walking around. The sages teach us it's when it became law, when it became legal and it was in legislature that they can marry. And it's legitimate in society. That's when God's fury came down upon Stom and upon the world. And if you look at history, that the great empires started to fall when their moral fiber started to deteriorate. There's a direct link to that. And that's why America is going down. It goes hand in hand with the moral decay of America and the lack of values. There's a straight relationship between that and the eventual decline of that empire. Moving on to something completely different. This Shabbat, we read Parshat Ba'alotcha, and there's a very unique event described there. And that's the choosing of a leader. How do you choose leaders? You know, we're used to choosing leaders by their ability to make a great speech their charisma, their organizational skills. Well, in this week's Pasha, the Torah lets us in on what are the factors that play a part in the choosing of a Jewish leader. And it has nothing to do with one's rhetoric abilities. What happened in our Pasha? As a result of the Jewish people sitting in the desert, Moshe Rabbeinu, he reaches a breaking point, something that never happened to before. He says, I can't carry the burden of this people anymore. It's too heavy for me. Moshe Rabbeinu has had enough. The Jews are driving him crazy. And he wants some help. He asks God to find people who can share the burden of leadership. So how do you pick these leaders? I mean, there's no shortage of righteous and talented Jews around. So God immediately, he singles out a specific group from which the next Jewish leadership will be chosen. It says like this, gather to me, shivim ish, 70 men of the elders of Israel and officers over them. The word officers is shotrim. What is shotrim? What do police officers have to do with this? So Rashi explains that word shotrim, police officers, it's referring to those Jewish policemen who were appointed in Egypt during the hard labor. And these Jewish police officers, they were like the in-between between the Egyptian taskmasters and the slaves. So who were these Jewish police officers? If you go back to the book of Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh, he lays down a rather heavy, if not impossible edict on the Jewish slaves. They have to produce a specific quarter of bricks without even being given straw. So the Jewish officers were ordered by the Egyptian taskmasters to oversee that the quarter was met. And if it wasn't met, the Jewish officers would be blamed and they'd be beaten. So they're in a dilemma. They're in like a capo situation where they're the go-between between the Egyptian taskmasters and the Jewish slaves. Either they turn over their brothers and by doing so, they save their own skin, or they can refuse the order, but they'll be severely punished if they do. So yeah, they were supposed to be Jewish capos. But these policemen, unlike others who throughout history have been placed in similar situations in our sad history, they refuse the order. They refuse to bear down on their already suffering brethren and didn't hand over the names of the Jews who couldn't meet the quota. And what happened? They got beaten for it. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 14, in the book of Exodus, it says very quietly, And the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. Those policemen, they were beaten because they refused to hand over those Jewish slaves. They took the blows in the place of their brothers. So we see already the criteria for a Jewish leader. He's supposed to have Avat Yisrael, not just merely a slogan, but somebody who really has a record of it, who suffered for his brothers, 
a record of placing one's personal welfare secondary to that of one's own people. Let's say a guy like Jonathan Pollard. And so these Jewish policemen in Egypt, there's something special. You know, if you look at soldiers and policemen today in Israel, sometimes they have to carry out the policy of the government, maybe to dismantle a settlement, maybe to arrest good Jews. And what do they tell you? I'm just a small cog in a big machine. I'm just following orders. Just following orders. But that's not what the Jewish policemen said. They said, this is an illegal order. I'm not going to follow this order. It's immoral. It's a cruel decree. And I'm not going to carry it out. Yeah, I'm going to refuse the order. So that misirut nefesh, that self-sacrifice, that readiness, that readiness, that willingness to sit in jail for your people, to get beaten for your people, misirut nefesh, self-sacrifice, that's the criteria of a Jewish leader. And speaking of self-sacrifice, I want to speak about a Jewish hero, maybe not everybody's heard of him, who was hung back in 1938. And we talk a lot here about the Lechi and the Etzel, and this particular Jew was the first one to go to the gallows, and his name was Shlomo ben Yosef. Let me tell you a little bit about who is Shlomo ben Yosef. Well, going back to those pre-state days in the 20s and the 30s, Arab terror was out of control, like it is today, not much has changed. And the reaction of the official Jewish body was Havlaga, Havlaga, self-restraint. That was the policy of the leaders of the Mapai, Havlaga. Well, during that time, there was an especially brutal murder on the road of Akko and Sfat, when an Arab gang stopped a Jewish car and they killed the four men inside the car and they raped the woman who was in the car multiple times and killed her. The reaction of the Sochnut, of the Jewish establishment then, Havlaga. Well, Shlomo ben Yosef was a member of Beitar in Rosh Pina and he decided to break the Havlaka, this policy of self-restraint. And he went out early in the morning and planned a reprisal attack on that same Sfat Rosh Pina highway. He waited on the side of the road and an Arab bus passed by. And Shlomo ben Yosef threw a grenade at that bus and shot with his gun. The gun he fired missed its mark. The grenade didn't even explode. And the Arab bus continued on like nothing happened. Well, despite the fact that no damage was done, the British arrested him, put him on trial, and his verdict, death by hanging. And there were many efforts to save his life. There was a plan to help him break out of jail by trying to bribe some of the Arab guards. And Ben Yosef, he opposed any such plan. He said it would be a desecration of the honor of Israel because people would think that I'm running away like somebody who's afraid. And during his last days in prison before being hung, these are some words he wrote to his friends. The Hebrew youth knows well that you can't achieve a homeland by buying it with money, but only through blood and war. People will say that I failed in my action. That is, that the grenade didn't even go off. But I didn't fail because I'm going to be an example to others who are going to come after me and they'll succeed. Tell the boys to continue my derech, to continue my way. And I have no doubt that they're going to continue and many are going to end their lives the way I'm ending mine. But make no mistake, this is the path to redemption. I know that a lot of people don't agree with me. But in the end, those are the same people who are going to erect memorials for us in the streets. And our names are the ones that will be written in the pages of history. Well, on a Wednesday in June of 1938, the British hung the holy Shlomo ben Yosef as he was singing the national anthem Hatikva on his lips. And that's how he became the first Jew to be hung by the British in the land of Israel. Now, what's important about Shlomo ben Yosef, again, it's not his action. He didn't succeed. But it really was true that what he did was really the beginning of breaking the Havlaga, 
of breaking this self-restraint policy? Because after him, just like he said, many came after him. He became a symbol for the Jewish resistance movement against the British. You see, any movement of any kind needs ruach, it needs spirit, something concrete that the members of the movement can rally around. And up to that point, it was Trumpledor who had taken command of the Galilee in Tel Chai, and he met his death there. He was shot by Arabs. And his dying words were, it does not matter. It's good to die for one's country. So, so Trumpledor's stoic death inspired the youth, and he became a national hero and a symbol. And Jabotinsky had chosen as a slogan for the Beitar movement the name of Trumpledor's fort. And members of Beitar, they would greet each other, not with Shalom, but with Tel Chai after Trumpledor's legacy. But after the British hanged Shlomo ben Yosef in the Akko prison, that symbolized the move from the defensive position implied by Tel Chai. After all, Trumpledor was guarding Tel Chai and he was killed doing so. But Shlomo ben Yosef, he went on offense. He was trying to go out and break the Havlaga and take vengeance on the Arabs. That was something new and different. And so Shlomo ben Yosef, he became the new symbol. And in many ways, Ben Yosef became a symbol for the Lehi, which was eventually established. In a 1943 memorial article, the underground group, the Lehi, they wrote, Ben Yosef, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, that is the Lehi, don't hold ceremonies at your grave. This is not a time for the people of Israel to hold ceremonies. The fighters for the freedom of Israel are faithful to you, faithful to your path, only we few. And so in that way, Shlomo ben Yosef, with his Misirut Nefesh, even though his action was totally ineffective, he paved the new path, a path of breaking Navlaga, of fighting back, of taking offense. And that's the legacy of Shlomo ben Yosef. May God avenge his blood. You know, when you read the history and the struggle to establish a Jewish state and to throw off the yoke of the British Empire, when you look at the history, it was obviously that the Irgun and the Lehi, they led the fight against the British. It wasn't the Haganah. That's obvious to any historian. So you can ask, then why didn't the Irgun and the Lehi take over when the British left? I mean, in any other normal revolution, the guys who make the revolution, they're the guys who take over. Well, with Jews, nothing is ordinary. And in this situation, even though it was the Etzel and the Lehi who did all the heavy lifting, the Haganah, the Mapai, Ben-Gurion, they took over the country. Why was that? Well, first of all, the militia of the Haganah was stronger than the militia of the Lechi and the Etzel. And the leaders of the Jewish agency, I mean, their whole thing was to rule. They wanted to be Balabayit. And the Irgun and the Lechi, for them, it wasn't that important who ran the country as long as it's Jews running the country and not foreign rule. And that's how it turned out that somebody like Ben-Gurion, even though he was the last one to come around to understanding that the British have to be thrown out through the bomb and the gun, nevertheless, it's him and his cohorts who ran the country and continued running the country and continue to run the country because their whole thing is to stay in power. And if you want to bring it up to date, they keep that power through the judiciary. They don't need elections. They have control of the judicial branch, of the academia, of the media. But from the very beginning, they had to rule and I'm going to play a couple of minutes for you of Rabbi Kahana explaining how the establishers of the state, Ben-Gurion, the agency, the Jewish establishment in Israel, how and why they ruined the Sephardi Jews who came into the country in the 40s and 50s, how they ruined them, why they ruined them. They ruined them because they saw religious Jews flowing into the country en masse, and the only thought in their head was, who are these people going to vote for? It's not for us, so we have to de-Judaize them and make them secular. And so we'll hear Rabbi Kahana now describing a very ugly part of Israel's history that maybe not everybody knows about, 
but should. And here it is. I remember what they did, how they destroyed whole communities of Jews from Morocco and Algeria and Libya and Tunis and Egypt and Syria and Iraq and Yemen in the 1940s. As the state came into, into being, hundreds of thousands of Jews poured in from Arab countries. Every one of those Jews was a Zionist, a real Zionist, not a Herzl kind of Zionist. They were Zionists for 2,000 years. May our eyes behold thy return to Zion. That was real Zionism. They were warm Jews, religious Jews, Zionists. They came in not because there was any threat to them. They came because of the chazon, the vision of Shivat Zion, the return to Zion. What happened to them? The leftist Mapai in Mapam stood and watched as 800,000 Jews poured into the country and they asked themselves the only question that, that has any meaning to them, the only thing that bothers them, the thing that means more to them than a state, than the Jewish people, the question was, for whom will they vote? All religious Jews, for whom will they vote? They certainly won't vote for us. And so they went about purposely, in cold blood, to spiritually destroy an entire people. Jews were put into Mabarot transit camps. And if you wanted a job, they asked you, where does your child study? In what school have you registered in? And if it was a religious school, there was no job. You wanted a job, they asked, where is your Pinkasadom? Where is your red book of the Istadrut? You're not a member? No job. Fascism? I know who the fascists were. They speak of Fiyadatit, religious coercion. Let me speak to you about religious coercion. In 1948, 10,000 Yemenite boys came to Israel without their parents under the auspices of Youth Aliyah. Every Yemenite boy who came to Israel came with his Shabbat, with his Kashrut, and with his Simanim, the sign. That's what they called the peyot, the earlocks, that every Yemenite boy had. The Simanim, because that was the sign of a Jew. For 2,000 years they had the Simanim. For 2,000 years they had the Shabbat. For 2,000 years they... They suffered, but they were Jewish. They came to the Holy Land, the Holy Land. They ripped from them their simanim, their Judaism, their Jewishness. Children of seven, eight, nine. They ripped from Jews the only values that they had, Judaism. And they left them naked to pick up the values of Dizengoff Street. I sat in prison in Israel. I saw the Yemenites, the Iraqis, the Moroccans, who never knew what crime was when they lived in, in Morocco and Yemen, and Iraq. They never tasted it. They came to Israel and were destroyed spiritually by people who cynically cared about one thing only, for whom will they vote? For whom will they vote? Yes, remaining in power still stands prominent for the Erev Rav. May God give us the strength to overcome them because it's the Jews and not the Arabs who are the real obstacle to the redemption. And may that redemption come speedily in our days that's it for me. Don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that for a fun, exciting, and deep study of the Bible. Tune into that, and I'll be back next week, God willing.